Welcome to Putting Women in Their Place, the podcast. I'm Megan Park, your host. While we're passionate about helping women achieve their goals, we also recognize that there are many women already in their place, doing the work they love and were put on this planet to do. Today we are talking to Iris Rowley. She was instrumental in forming the Cincinnati Black United Front 20 years ago. Stick around and be inspired. so much, Iris, for joining us today. So tell me first about the Black United Front. Where did it start? How did it start? The Black United Front started in the year of 2000. In the summer of 2000, 14 of our downtown restaurants decided to close during the jazz festival. The music festival has been the largest revenue generating event that the city has. And so 14 of the downtown restaurants decided that they were going to close. And they decided with multiple reasons. They actually sent the letter to the Chamber of Commerce in the city of Cincinnati saying, we're going to shut down because black people steal salt and pepper shakers. They don't know how to tip. They don't know how to order. They don't know how to act. uh, And we just don't want to be bothered. So we arose out of that. In that same year of 2000 in November, November 7th to be exact, we had what we call 2 and 24. Two and 24 refers to two black men shot by police within 24 hours. The first was Jeffrey Irons. Jeffrey Irons was a black male who suffered from mental health complications. And stolen something from the IGA, I believe in Clifton, was chased by the Cincinnati Police Department, shot and killed. Within that same 24 hours, we had Roger Owensby Jr. Roger Owensby Jr., black male, veteran, home six months, was the only parent taking care of his daughter and was killed by a chokehold. And he was killed in a um, public area, a gas station that sits two blocks from where my business is. I still see the hurt, the pain, and the anger every day. So those two happened in the black community was not just going to settle for what we typically had gotten, that everything was okay without an investigation, and that the police were justified in what they were doing. The black community came to the black United front and said, hey, you guys are out here. You're making noise. You're visible. Can you take a look at what is going on with the black community and its police department? And we, in our righteous indignation, said, of course we would. Not knowing all that it encompassed, not knowing the sacrifices that we were about to embark on. So So, is it just focused within Cincinnati or is it a broader... Does it have a broader focus, or do different cities have their own organization? Different cities do different things, but it certainly has. The work has spanned uh, across the United States. A lot of people have taken what we've done here, and they've taken bits here, bits here, and they've you know, incorporated it. So like uh, in New York, for example, we went there for three years to help reshape what their stop and frisk policies look like. We've been everywhere with the model. We used every tool in the civil rights handbook. We were in the streets. We filed a federal class action lawsuit in the Sixth Circuit Court. And we enacted, um, maybe a year later, our sanctions and boycott, where we asked people to stop coming to Cincinnati. Do not make it your travel destination. We cost the city, in their estimation, over $70 million, because Black Lives Matter to us then. It wasn't just a hashtag. We were out to save Black lives. And so we had two white men that would come to our meetings every Tuesday and say, we want to help them. We said, no, 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 no. We need some Black lenses, Black law, Black knowledge, Black felt, Black being. 
Somebody must have pulled out Coltel and said, you need to listen to them guys. Some guys are good at what they do. Those two guys turned out to be Al Gerhardstein and Scott Greenwood. And if you know anything about this particular work, you know that Al Gerhardstein is my partner. And not in crime, but in development and accountability of doability, of problem solving, of transparency, of fairness, and certainly of equity for African-Americans in its public safety division. We then elicited over 400 stories in the Black community to get a lens of where we were because we didn't know. We did a questionnaire that was designed by our attorneys to get at what we were really looking at in the city of Cincinnati, what was really going on, and how were Black people uh, being policed in their city. In those 400 stories, I think our attorneys whittled it down to 16. Those 16 stories rest inside of the collaborative agreement. It took us over 18 months to negotiate the terms of the agreement. It was up to us whether we just wanted to go into court to litigate for financial responsibility or did we want to do something different? What is the collaborative agreement and what what did it cover and where is that going? Yeah, so the collaborative agreement is an agreement that came out of the federal lawsuit that the Cincinnati Black United Front and the ACLU filed in the Sixth Circuit um, Federal Court. We wanted to file on capitalism uh, because we understood <laughs> what the driver was, but we filed on police misconduct and police accountability. So we sued the city, we sued the Fraternal Order of Police, and we sued the Cincinnati Police Department. Um, and out of that came the negotiations. We had the opportunity of determining if we wanted to, you know, settle the, the, the suits, the lawsuits that had already been out there. We decided um, that we wanted to not just settle the outstanding suits monetarily, we needed to change the rules. We needed to change policies. We needed to change procedures and guidelines. And we needed to take all of the complaints that we heard from black citizens and white citizens, and we need to turn them into training and then turn that training into policy. It had the federal oversight. So we had a federal judge, a conciliator, a special master is what it's called in the, in the courts, to oversee all parties of this agreement, to make sure that we were doing this in a fair and balanced way and that all voices were heard. We spend a lot of time talking about the collaborative agreement, but what exactly does it say? Here's a simplified list. It's meant to ensure that police officers and community members become proactive partners in community problem solving, build relationships of respect, cooperation, and trust, improve education, oversight, monitoring, hiring practices, and accountability, ensure fair, equitable, and courteous treatment for all, and create methods to establish the public's understanding of police policies and procedures. So which the city called the DOJN to look at its use of force policies. Those two agreements became intertwined. And these are the only two agreements like it in the country. I believe the collaborative is the only one like it in the country um, because the Black community pushed for it. We knew that we wanted to be at the table. We knew that we were not advocating and doing all of this research and writing just to step away. We also were studiers of history, and we knew based on other agreements, such as Brown versus Board of Education, when you step away from the tables, things can flip. Your idea, the spirit of the word, what was actually written can be interpreted differently if you're not at the table. So we wanted to create something that kept us in the room. And that is what rests inside of the collaborative agreement. 
the class, all African-Americans and or black people who are perceived as such, who live and walk on the streets and thoroughfares uh, of the city of Cincinnati and who come into contact with Cincinnati police and or their agents. And then the last line says all others, because we wanted to make sure if there was any abuse being um, poured onto other communities that we can count that data and make sure that people are protected too. So that's how we got to those two agreements. They intertwine, the wording intertwines. You can't separate the two. And again, you won't find it anyplace else in, in the world or in the country uh, other than in Cincinnati, Ohio. Cincinnati should be proud of those documents. People look at me and they go, how did you do that? You know, what they're really asking is how would black people so righteously indignant um, that they would go in and sue the police, the FOP and the city for racial profiling. And we just said enough was enough. We were at our 13th and 14th killing with Jeffrey Irons and Roger Owensby Jr. We filed our class action into the court in March of 2001. And we thought that we would stop the police from killing. We thought that we would stop the mayhem and the chaos that they were creating on the cities. And then Timothy Thomas happened in April. And that was after we filed. And I often have to say that because I want people to understand these agreements are proactive and not reactive. We reacted to something, our 13 and 14, but we were trying to stop the 15. Timothy Thomas was an unarmed black 19-year-old with several misdemeanor traffic infractions on his record. Things like driving without a seatbelt or driving without a license. After being pursued by police officers on foot down a darkened alley, he was shot in the chest just a few short weeks after the agreements had been filed. Timothy's death spurred four days of riots that cost the city of Cincinnati approximately 3.6 million in property damages. But fortunately, no more deaths. When Timothy happened, it was a huge blow to us. Again, because you're thinking in your mind, I'm filing this huge ass class action lawsuit against you that you know you guys will act like you got some sense and you not do anything stupid. It, it was devastating to us. Um, and it was devastating to me. It was devastating to the black community because we were promising change, immediate change, not understanding and realize that when you're dealing with systems, politicians, elections, policing, fire, and all these things, e economics, that bureaucracy can be slow. It can be tedious, it can be challenging, and it can sabotage good work. So that's, this is why we're having this conversation 20 years later. But yes, we did file before Timothy Thomas was, was killed by the Cincinnati Police Department. And then after that, the three days of civil unrest ensued. When did you start to see a shift? You started to see a shift um, because people were engaged. We had 3,500 people vote on what the goals of the collaborative agreement would be. So we invited the police and their families. We invited the LGBTQIA, um, for-profit and non-profits, religious sector, um, the black community, other minorities, youth. We invited all of those people to days and days of conversation of what public safety should look like. And that's how we got to the goals of the CA. And we turned all of that conversation into training. And we took all of that conversation and turned it to policy. So you were intersectional before that was a catchphrase. Yes. Yes, we were problem solvers before we knew it, baby. This episode is brought to you in part by the YWCA. 
The World YWCA is a movement working for the empowerment, leadership, and rights of women and girls in more than 100 countries. The members and supporters include women from many different faiths, ages, backgrounds, beliefs, and cultures. Their common goal is for 100 million young women and girls to transform power structures, create justice, gender equality, and a world without violence and war by 2035. To support the YWCA, please visit ywca.org. I thought Cincinnati had become then the model for other cities. Cincinnati were like, yeah, I mean, really it had that. been. I think the model was the empowering of, of citizens to stand up. And I think that that gets lost in the tomato sauce is that we led this effort. The city didn't just wake up and say, you know what? Maybe our police department needs to look. That didn't happen. They came screaming and kicking all the way to federal court. The black community led this effort to empower its community. The people have the power and it's not the other way around to see it rise up from the bottom up and not top down. That's the model. Uh, The other model is the philosophy around policing and problem solving, making sure our voices were at the table and not police led, being led by communities because those who are most impacted know where the impact starts and what could potentially stop it. And it's not just that it was the evaluation of the city and the police, but in the community, too. Um, and you have a role in this as a citizen is to hold your government accountable. Well, that's what progressive means, right? Like you make this change, but you're not done. And then you have to make more change and then you're not done. And you have to keep making change. So you look at the 60s and then you look at what you did in early 2000s. And then you look at now. How has the movement progressed and how have women really brought this forward you know I, i'll try not to get emotional but in this Please journey get emotional. Of, We've <laughs> in this journey for the past 20 years it's been difficult for iris um when, when i started i worked for general electric at the time and my youngest son was six years old six or seven he'll be 27 in august um and we're still at it now we have this thing called social media and the internet. Anybody can become uh, a leader or create a movement now. It's like the buzzword. And so when I first said I was looking for the leaders of the free world, I actually was meeting women. She was on a stage in Cincinnati's Washington Park, repeatedly calling out, where are my leaders of the free world? During a peaceful protest after George Floyd's murder and specifically looking for black women because people would talk over us and not want to hear us and uh, not want to hear our pain and anguish and suffering. So I was looking for them to give them a voice because that's what I finally got. And I think, you know, a couple of men, uh, one is my husband, Jesse, and then that Al Gerhardstein who would never let me quit. And I used to say to him, hey, being in a room with these white police officers, they are disrespectful. And he would challenge me and say, it's only disrespectful if you're looking for respect from them. Oh, that's an interesting perspective. Right? And so and I had to realize I wasn't looking for respect from them. I was so looking if you take for the button away, they can't push the button. They can't push the button. And so you know what I started saying to them when I walk into the room? I'm the boss. I'm the taxpayer. So this black lady with this natural hair walking in a room talking about she's the boss, she's the taxpayer, y'all gonna listen. It got more rooms stirred up and more people moving. And I believe then and only then that real uh, respect occurred. Just respect me as a human being. 
Why do I have to go through these things? So, so I think the same principles apply then around integrity, focus, determination, as they do now. And I've taken those principles and I bring them to the young folk and I call them the leaders of the free world because that's who I was calling for, right? <laughs> um, and I take those old school principles that people say, that don't work. And I said, you damn well, Skippy does work. And guess who did the work then? Women. We were behind the scenes doing all the damn work. So if we could be behind the scenes doing the work, we should be in front of the scene now doing uh, the work by way of our voices, our gifts, our talents, our skill sets, our brains, and our hearts. Um, women have kept me afloat. Had it not been for women saying, even though I had very smart men who knew to say, you better hang in there. Um, women, we know how one another feel. We can just look at each other and, and say that we're having a bad day or a bad thought or, or I got you. You don't have to feel this way in the meeting. Just let it, I got you. Or don't say it. I got it, you know? And so it's been, those sacred moments that you don't even talk about sometimes. But it's also women, you know, sometimes I think we make this work look too damn easy. And then people think that we can solve every issue of the world and we can't, and especially when men aren't listening. What do you see with the next generation and these leaders of the free world? What I see in them is hope. I see tenacity and energy and I see you know, innovation, and I see fearlessness, and I also see future designers of what this world looks like, and I am just so honored to be in their presence, and I say to them all the time that they are saving my life, because I don't know if or when I would let this go, because we're talking about life and death every single day. And so when these leaders of the free world, um, when I see them and, I, and they're reading and they're trying to digest what we wrote in the early 2000s and they're trying to digest the documents from the um, collaborative re refresh and the master plan and, and they're reading other cities and what they're doing, it is just so freaking hopeful that there are people out here who really give a damn about democracy, about policy, and lastly, about people. So do you work with them regularly? Like, what is your goal with them? You're just sort of training them up into this movement to carry it on? So what we're doing, we've created the Institute for the Leaders of the Free World to learn, um, you know, grounding historical reference information about the city of Cincinnati, to learn about the police accountability measures that we put in place through the collaborative and it's refreshed over the past 19 and a half years, and to learn about other systems that drive people into crime, which is poor education, which is inequities in uh, income, mm -hmm. transportation, housing, all of these things in health that we go through on a daily on the day of life and to put women first. We can't talk about progress and making things better without talking about money, right? Like, Right. If so, I could get, Megan, if I didn't get 10 years back, I probably wouldn't have focused 20 years on police accountability. I would have focused 10 on it and then 10 equally on um, economics because at the end of the day, that's what it's all about. There's been a call with all of this that's happening after George Floyd's murder um, and the COVID shutdown to focus on supporting Black businesses. What do you mm -hmm. think of that? 
Um, I come from a business advocacy family. My grandfather was the first black bills bondsman in the city of Cincinnati. My grandmother was a, an LPN, then an RN. She started the Black Nurses Association and was a huge advocate and activist in the, in the city. And I think that it's imperative that black business get the same support as non-black businesses do so that we can develop our communities the way that we know and see fit and that we are part of the economy the the fabric of how the economics flow um and so that our children can dream i'm grateful that people are seeing uh the importance of black business but just imagine if i was still at general electric just imagine if I was still on somebody's job. How much of an advocate would I have been? Would my job shut me down? Uh, sometimes it's painful. Sometimes I cry um, very hard and for days at a time because it's overwhelmingly insane and unfair. Uh, but I wouldn't have it any other way. I wouldn't take these 20 years back. Uh, I love the tenacity and I love the iron. I love the woman that I am and that I've come to be. I love all the women, the women who have poured into me and who have shored me up from front, back, and both sides saying, go girl, you do that damn thing and don't worry about making a mistake. You are human. And that's what it is to be human, is to make mistakes. Just get yourself up. The problem is how you see the problem. Get yourself up, dust yourself off, and keep it moving and keep fighting. And I get that on a daily basis. Sometimes I'll be in a community and just stop at a Dollar General store to get stuff. And people say, are you always rolling? And sometimes I'm like, I don't know whether to say yes or no. <laughs> and they say, no, I just want to say thank you for for fighting for me. And you don't even know me. Um, that is where you get that. It's okay. Thank you, universe, for making me as difficult and um, as easy as complicated, as simple um, as I can be. Um, And just being me, and I love it. I love me. Thanks for listening to Putting Women in Their Place, the podcast. Putting Women in Their Place is dedicated to promoting progressive, pro-choice women in the organizations that support them with video, social media, and digital strategy. Check out our website, puttingwomenintheirplace.com. This episode is brought to you in part by the YWCA, keeping women safe for 165 years.